please turn with me today to Mark chapter 13. I'm going to be beginning in, in verse 24, and that's on page 850 in your pew Bibles. It's Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 36. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. But also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thank you, Jamie. Let's pray as we just uh, give our hearts over to the Lord for this, this time in God's word. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to us. The revealed word of God, which is there to warn us, to Help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts and our lives for what will be one day. We pray as we just unfold and unpack this passage of Scripture of prophecy, we just ask our hearts would be tender towards what you would want us to do with it. In Christ's name, amen. So it's our last week of chapter 13 of Mark, which is really out of the entire gospel certainly one of the more challenging portions of the book. And it's a prophecy from our Lord and Savior Jesus about what will be one day. And really the broad application of chapter 13 is that our hearts would be tender, our hearts would be ready, and our lives would be prepared for ultimately what will one day be. It's very hard sometimes in the world we live in, in the lives we lead, to think that uh, things are going to be radically changed. We wake up, the sun rises, the sun sets, we have a rhythm of our week, 
Most of us go to work at a certain time. We come home, we shop, we watch TV, we have quiet time, whatever your routine is. And it's, it's hard to imagine in the routine of life how that all that would be interrupted very quickly one day. And this is the point that Jesus is making to us, is that in light of what will be one day, our lives should be prepared that our hearts should be ready for when he returns. On multiple occasions throughout the chapter, he's telling us to stay awake, to be on guard, to be watchful. These are not just uh, small words in the scripture. These are words to, to help us to become more attentive to the things of God. The past few weeks, we've been looking at various portions of the chapter. If you remember week one, we looked at the temptation of how worldliness, worldliness can choke out our senses of what God is doing in this world and our lives. And remember the disciples, how they, uh, these illiterate fishermen that God had called to be the shakers of the world, while they were in Jerusalem this last week before Christ would be crucified and raised, really they didn't have a clue of everything that was coming along. And they're just looking at the huge buildings in Jerusalem and marveling at all of the splendor of the world. Remember we talked about these disciples, and we know it from multiple passages, in their mind believed that Jesus would be installed king of a civic kingdom, that they would be the kingpins, and they would reign with him with a power and oust the occupying Romans. They had a very different vision than what the word of God had. That's often the way it is with us, isn't it? We cultivate a vision about our lives that's different from God's word. That is a dangerous place to be. You know, uh, what if a man, Jesus said, gains the whole world and loses his soul? The obvious answer to that question is nothing. That if we don't tend to the things of eternity in our own soul and our relation with God, that whatever we foster in this life, whatever kind of family we have, whatever kind of possessions we have, whatever kind of accomplishments will one day be no more. Therefore, the word of God says, do not love the world or the things of the world. For if we love the world, the love of the father is not in us. And so we're invited from scripture multiple times to be on guard, to be watchful. And so this entire chapter was an exhortation to the disciples. Don't look at all the splendor of Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And then we saw the last few weeks how Jesus unveils two other periods of time. One, the church age, which we're in right now. And during that particular age, we saw how Jesus in this chapter tells us during this time there would be natural disasters. There would be persecution and false religions and teachers and wars and rumors and wars. And that's exactly what we see. But, but within this chapter, during this age, something amazing is happening. The word of God is being preached. The word of God is being preached. The gospel is going forward into the world. You know, I'll give you just one example, just to, to, to cheer your heart. Right in the middle of Syria, right on the edge of Syria, war-torn 
Syria. It's been through civil war now almost 10 years. You had ISIS pushing the Syrians from the, the south, and you have the Assad in the Syrian uh, empire pushing a group of people from the uh, west. And, and what wound up happening is all these refugees came into these camps. Well, I met a, a medical doctor a few months ago who had spent over a year there caring for those people. And what was he doing? Doctor without borders. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's being preached all over the world. Rumors, a war, and remember the great hurricane, Sandy? We as a church were going down to Tom's River. What were we doing as uh, we were helping families uh, gutting their homes, preaching the gospel and natural disasters. You see, God is being glorified, and that is the story that Jesus wants us to know, that while all these things are going on, our hearts should not be alarmed and full of fear, but we should be caught up in what God is doing in the world, and that's what we were looking at during this church age. And last week, we looked at the Great Tribulation, which some of us know to be that seven-year period, which would be at the very end of the age, which would be launched with the abomination of desolation. We looked at that interesting period of time, which is spoken of in Revelation in great detail. And really the point Jesus is making again, as we look forward to that time, that these things are said to us, that our hearts would be prepared and ready for that eventual day. This week, as we finish up this amazing chapter, there are three things that I want us to to see here, beginning in verse 24. First, Jesus tells us what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, the days immediately before he returns. Secondly, uh, we're going to look at the day of Christ's return itself. He speaks of it here. Jesus himself speaks of it. And then finally, The real question for all of us is, what do we need to do to prepare our hearts in light of all these truths? So let's look at these verses of Scripture. Coming back to to Mark chapter 13, look at 24 and 25 with me if you have your Bibles open. This is the end of the tribulation period now. Jesus speaking, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. Wow. That sounds like a seismic event, doesn't it? Listen to how this prophecy is laid out in Revelation now. This is a parallel passage in Revelation chapter 6, uh, verses 12 and, uh, through 14. When he opened the sixth seal... And this is the way Revelation is laid out. We have seven seals being broken, seven trumpets being sounded, seven bowls of wrath being poured out. This is the sixth seal. He says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth. Then the kings of the earth And the great ones called out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand? Now, I'll tell you who can stand on this great day. It's those who are clothed in righteousness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the doctrine of Christ's atonement is so important for us to understand. When Jesus went to that cross and died for our sins, he died as a substitutionary sacrifice, meaning this, that instead of us having to stand before God with our sins, because of what Jesus did for us on that cross, his shed blood, he substituted himself so that now, by faith, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of me standing before God with my sin, which Scripture describes as like filthy rags, I stand before him clothed with white linen, clean. That's one of the images of the book of Revelation. Who can stand? The ones who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones who can can stand. And all this prophecy is in keeping here with what Mark 13, 19 tells us that that tribulation period that's coming, this seven-year period, would be unlike anything the world has ever faced. And here in Mark and Revelation, we see that no one, no one, even the greatest and most powerful men on earth will be able to escape that dreadful day. And if you take time to to read the book of Revelation, um, you'll see that there's plenty of horrors and terrific thoughts there as the seals are broken and these trumpets are sounding, the bowls of wrath are poured out. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here uh, and give you a lesson in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a very fancy word for Bible interpretation. Bible interpretation. Now, some of us have tried to read through the Bible in a year. God bless you. I try to do it every two years. I try to read through the Bible. I think it's an important exercise. We, by the way, if you go out in the foyer, we have free Bible reading plans, which will get you through the Bible in one year. A great way to do it. But then you come to these, what are called prophetic passages, and they really present three difficulties when we try to interpret them. And I'm just going to really quickly guide you through why they are difficult to interpret. First, often these passages are uses what is called apocryphal language. What is that? Well, the Bible has, it's interesting, the Bible is 66 books, by the way, in five genres of literature, five genres of literature. Some of the literature is wisdom literature. Some of it is historical narrative. Some of it is poetry. And then there's some that is called prophecy or apocryphal language. It's symbolic. It's allegorical. For example, in the book of Revelation, we find various numbers, colors, animals, objects that represent things not to be taken literally, but represent things that point to events and various truths. Here in Mark 13, part of the chapter's apocryphal language, and you'll find the same kind of language in Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and other books of the Bible. The point is this, we have to be careful not to read too much into certain things and always go back to the main point of what the chapter is teaching about. Here, in the context of Mark 13, he's obviously talking about his return. 
Let's not lose sight of that, that Jesus is coming back one day and for us to be ready for when he returns. Every passage of apocryphal prophetic language in the Bible will have a point, really, to warn those who are reading it to have their hearts ready. So that's one challenge. A second challenge is often there is multiple fulfillment of one prophecy, just to think, uh, to just get even more confused, right? For example, Jesus' prophecy here in Mark thirteen twenty four, where the sun is darkened, and the moon is darkened, is repeated in Joel 3, 9, and also repeated by the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, when using it, is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus at the ninth hour when he died on the cross. And see, many believe when they study Joel's prophecy, it has more than one fulfillment. It has a, pro- a fulfillment when Jesus died at the cross, and also has a fulfillment at the end of the Revelation uh, tribulation period. Abomination of desolation, uh, another prophecy with multiple fulfillments. When Daniel talks about the, the, the uh, book of Daniel, most commentators believe he's not only talking about the very end of times when Jesus returns, but also when a Gentile ruler, Antiochus, profaned the temple with pig's blood in 176 and when Rome uh, desecrated the temple in 70 A.D. Even in Mark 13, when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened, by the way, in 70 AD, we find within a few sentences, he's also talking about hundreds of years of a church age. Uh, again, the point is, when we see these multiple fulfillments of prophecy, for us to go back to what the main point is in the context that's being taught by the author. Final thing, I'm giving you a really, for some of you, might be a boring exercise, but I really, I don't know why I felt led to do this. Last thing, prophecies, just as thought, you, you think you're not confused now, wait till you hear this one. Prophecies are often not in chronological order. That's the Hebrew literature way of doing things. In the book of Revelation, the sixth seal is followed by one more seal and then seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. Sometimes it's chronological. Other times they seem parallel. When you read Ezekiel, Daniel, and the many prophecies are clearly not linearly placed in sequence. Here's my conclusion on all this. We need to always look at the bigger picture. So did you get what I just said? What's the bigger picture in Mark 13? Jesus is coming. What's the big picture in Mark 13? Get your hearts ready for when he comes back. All right, I got that out of my system. Secondly, we saw that these are the days that look like before Jesus comes. What about the day that Jesus comes? Well, look at Mark thirteen twenty six. Mark Mark thirteen twenty six. And then they'll see the Son of Man. Who will see the Son of Man? Those who are here on earth during this tribulation period. Remember, we talked about the church being raptured. The church will not go undergo God's wrath during this time. That's at least my belief, and many here. In Mark 13, 26, and then he says, Many will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. Here we see a fulfillment of what the two angels said to the disciples in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 111, when Jesus, after he gave them the great commission to preach and be witnesses to all the nations through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
While all this is happening, Jesus then ascends from them, goes into the clouds and disappears. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? They thought that he was going to still restore the glory of Israel at this time. And they were dumbfounded that they were left with this responsibility. And then they said this. While after Jesus ascends, there was two angels that God sent, and they said this to the disciples. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostle Paul, when describing this great day of the Lord, when Jesus would return back upon the clouds, put it this way in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, this is a fantastic thought. It doesn't matter how much wealth a person has, their possessions, their status, their power. As we just saw in Revelation chapter 6, when that sixth seal is broken, Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. This day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, is alluded to over a hundred times clearly in the Old Testament throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's one of the consistent themes throughout the Bible that all of history, all of history is churning towards this great end. When Jesus returns with salvation in one hand for those who trusted and believe in him and judgment on the other that will be rendered to the nations and the wicked. Listen to the way Daniel, just one prophecy, and there are so many. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 describes this event. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. Praise the Lord. Amen? That's what we have to look forward to as believers in Christ. Jesus continues, look at Mark thirteen twenty-seven, where he gathers now His people, he's returning now. We're at the end of the tribulation. He returns, and what does he do as he's returning? He's gathering those who've trusted him. Look at 1327. And then he'll send out his angels and gather his elect. Those are the believers in Christ from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Who's he talking about here? He's alluding to the raptured saints who are in heaven. Those who died in the Lord, who are in heaven before the tribulation period, and now also gathering those who would go through the tribulation period, who would trust him as Savior. Remember, in the book of Revelation, we have 144,000 people who are raised up from Israel who will have a prophetic uh, ministry of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. So many are going to come to know him, and now he's gathering them together. It's a beautiful picture. Revelation 19 describes Jesus' coming this way. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. It really symbolizes victory. Every uh, 
victorious king in the ancient world would return back to the city gates on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in, in righteousness he judges. His eyes are like flames of fire. He's called the word of God, and the armies of heaven array, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's all victorious. Didn't you ever want to ride a horse? Good news, right, Ted? We're all coming back on horses. He's got horses. There's a few of us who have horses. And I like that picture. Get rid of the car, really. Who needs these cars? They're just headaches anyway. And on his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written on King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember, last week we talked about this, how when Christ comes, it would be followed by a thousand-year millennial kingdom in accordance with Revelation 20, the next chapter. And it would be a time when Christ, together with his saints, would rule for a thousand years. It's called millennial kingdom. Listen to how Isaiah, I love this passage. We were just studying it recently. We're on Wednesday night in Isaiah. Describes this time. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and a little child shall lead them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Instead of war and violence and terror and fear, Christ with his people will be on earth, and even a little child will be amongst those ferocious beasts. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David shall stand as a signal for the people of him. The nations will inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. Don't you want a glorious resting place? Well, that leads us to our last truth this morning. End of tribulation period. Jesus returns. What are we to do about all these truths that we're hearing this morning? Well, we need to prepare our hearts for his return. You know, the idea of, we talked about this, the imminent return of Christ, it's a doctrine, it has the idea that, that Jesus can come back at any time. Uh, remember what Jesus taught here, no man knows the time or hour. He could come back now. This is taught throughout Scripture, and it's there to help us realize that we need to always be ready. Notice how Jesus gives us a metaphor in Mark 13, 28, and 29. He calls a lesson from the fig tree. A lesson from the fig tree. The idea here is when a fig tree is finished shedding its leaves in the winter months and then begins to grow fresh leaves and branches in the spring, we know what? Summer is near. Just like we've just gone through a spring. Trees are barren. Trees begin to bear uh, buds. We know the spring is at hand just by looking at the trees. So Jesus is really saying when we see all the signs that he just talked about in Mark 13, what would happen during the church age, what would happen during the tribulation period, know that his time is near. Now, in fact, Jesus in verse 29 says, is near at, at, at the very gates. And then Jesus said this, look at verse 31, 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
unto all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And though generation can mean 40 years of time, it's used consistently throughout Scripture to speak about the generation of mankind. The civilization of man. That means you and I are in that generation right now. And we see in verse 32 and 36, 37, some of the verses that are the basis of this doctrine of Christ's imminent return. But concerning the day or, or hour, no one knows. Does anyone know here when Jesus is returning? Good. Because then I would have to rebuke you. It really upsets me when I see some uh, Bible teachers. And I was looking at Wikipedia a few weeks ago. Do you know there were like over 25 listings of various church leaders and cult leaders who announced that Jesus is coming? The Jehovah Witnesses announced it four different times, and they were wrong every single Now they finally say, well, he's here symbolically. That's what they're saying. <laughs> That's what cults do. They twist and turn the word of God. Jesus is trying to help us here to prepare ourselves for that great day. He uses a parable in Mark 13, 36 and 37, how a servant should carry on their responsibilities in light of not knowing when his master will return. Uh, look at that scripture. You do not know when the master of the house will come back. In the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning, stay awake, beware, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. You know, in a weird way, this parable reminds me of my first job. Well, you say, well, what was your first job, Pastor Joe? My first job at the age of 13 was a beach cleaner. I lived two blocks from the beach in Long Branch, New Jersey, a few blocks from the beach. And uh, I was hired at the age of 13 to clean the beaches, and the job started at 5.30 in the morning, which for a 13-year-old is pretty early. And uh, so it meant getting up at 5 and stumbling forward and having to walk the several blocks to the beach to meet the crews. But interestingly, after a couple of weeks, we realized, the group of us, teenagers, realized that though we were hired for four hours of work, we actually could finish our job in two hours. So by 7.30, we were finished with cleaning the beaches that were assigned to us. So we devised a scheme. One of us would be on the lookout for the supervisor while a group of us would lay down and go to sleep until 9.30. And then we'd, he'd get us up, and then we, we thought we were so clever at the age of 13, like the supervisor had no clue. It worked beautifully until one day, one of the lookout guys fell asleep. <laughs> Not good. I think I'm still mad at the guy, even though I don't remember his name. The supervisor, he was an older man in his 60s, an actual retired sergeant who fought in World War II, master sergeant from the Marines. He was also the football coach for the Pop Warners, so that's why I remember him. He probably thought it was funny, but it wasn't funny to us at the time because we're all sleeping away, just enjoying our slumber, and he's standing directly over us. 
And then at the top of his lungs, in mustering every ounce of his old master sergeant rigor that he could, he started excoriating us. From that day forward, we somehow, even after the beaches were cleaned up, kept raking away, looking busy, even if we were just moving seashells around. So that leads us to this last question. How do we as believers prepare for Christ's return? I mean, it sounds so vague, doesn't it? I've thought a lot about this over the years as a pastor and even for my personal life. What does a life look like that's ready for his return? Jesus uses metaphorical language like a master who's going to return at the house at any time. And and the main point there is the the servant, the good servant, is found doing the things that his master has asked him to do. Well, what exactly is the Lord asking us to do? And I kind of squished it down to four things to leave you with this morning. Four things to fulfill these verses in verse 33, 35, 36. Be on guard, keep awake, stay awake. Stay awake, he says 20... Two times. Four things. First, you have to have absolute assurance of your salvation in Christ. It's not a vague thing. I was at the bedside of someone a few weeks ago sharing with them the gospel. They just didn't have assurance. That's not the place you want to be. You see, when you receive Christ as your personal Savior... The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us and speaks to us and tells us that we're saved. It's a a confidence. It's a confidence that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not questioning that when that day comes and he arrives, is he going to accept me? Is he not going to accept me? No, that is not the language of Scripture. On more than one occasion, Scripture says In fact, multiple times that we can know, we can have confidence as we stand before God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So you have to have that. If you don't have that, you're not ready. What are the other three? Let's say you have that. This is for the believer now, the other three. Every day, we should be cultivating our relationship with God. We do that primarily through spending time in his word and prayer. Those are called the disciplines of the spirit. If you're not having a daily time in God's word, that means the world has got a foothold in your life. The concerns and the worries of this world have more of you than God has of you. You don't want to be in that place. The only way you're going to surplant the anxieties and the worries of this world is if you take time And spend time with God that your day may proceed from that place of confidence in your relationship with him. That's number two. Three, develop healthy relationships within your family and fellowship with other believers. You know, God tells us, and this is called the royal command of Christ, to love one another. To love one another. Do you know, there can be, there is no other if you're not in relationship 
with others. So our relationships with one another in the family, our marriages, our children, our church, our paramount. If we're not in fellowship as a family or a fellowship with one another as believers, we're not ready. You know, there's over 61 another's in the New Testament to encourage one another, to forgive one another, to love one another, to build each other up. So many one You can't do those things in isolation. You need relationship. And then the final thing is, know what your role is in God's kingdom, his church. Do you know scripture speaks repeatedly about spiritual gifts? Every one of us here has been given a gift. You've heard me say this before. There's no nobodies in the kingdom of heaven. Just somebodies. The question is, is what is God's responsibility he's given you? I can't answer that question for you. That's your job. That's your job. What am I going to do with the few days that I have here on planet Earth so that when he returns, I have something to hold out to him? What a sad day, and Scripture makes it very clear. Sad day for the person who has nothing in his hands. In fact, I would question that whether that person has salvation in Christ if they're holding nothing in their hands. I'm going to finish with this verse. This is from Matthew now, 25. Remember what I talked about a few weeks ago? Matthew chapter 24 is a parallel chapter with Mark. But the difference between Mark and Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus finishes up this time of teaching with three parables. The parables of the ten virgins who are holding their lamps ready for the bridegroom. That's really speaking about our readiness, being prepared. The parable of the talents, which speaks about us using that which God has given us for his glory. And then the parable of the sheep and the goats. What does the believer look like? One who's a caring and merciful to a hurting world around it. So I'm going to finish with this. This is at the end of the parable of the talents. Listen now, and we'll close in prayer. For to everyone who has, more will be given. That's a great promise right there. Can't outgive the giver. Give yourself wholly to the Lord. You're going to have more in the end. That's what that means. And he will have an abundance, in fact. But from the one who has not, what's he talking about here? The call upon our lives to believe in the Lord Jesus and to use our lives for his cause. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And then Jesus has these horrific words, really, that should pierce us and sober us if we have questions in our heart about our salvation. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell, my friends. That's hell. That means this stuff we're talking about here is very serious business indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You love us enough to warn us. Help our lives to be, to count, Lord, for your glory and 
Help us not to be lost by the worries and the concerns of this life and this world, but to live wholeheartedly, all out for you, Lord. I pray for each person here. For those who know you as Savior and Lord, may our lives be meaningful. May we spend time to get to know you, to love you, and to use our lives for your glory. I pray for each person here that they be able to cultivate that and to to learn to love you. And then for those, Lord, who may be here who do not have confidence of their salvation, well, all eyes are closed. And we're in prayer right now. If you're here this morning and you want to receive Christ as your personal Savior, you've never really done that or you don't have confidence, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you right now and just call upon the Lord that you may be saved? Would you raise your hand so I can see that hand? You don't know Jesus. I see that. You don't have that confidence. I see that hand. I see another hand. Lord, you know each of our hearts. Lord, I pray for those who raise their hands. Give them that assurance. Give them that confidence that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you for the word of God. Help them, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.